0: Welcome back to the BFA Life Podcast. It's Josh here, and Nathan is not actually in today. He is at home right now. He and his beautiful wife, Julie, welcomed their first newborn daughter into the world. And um, so he is out probably having lots of snuggle time and getting used to having a baby in the home. Uh, Nathan and Julie, if you're listening to this, we're so happy for you and we love you. And we're just praying for you guys as you make this adjustment. In this episode, we are going to look back to the beginning of the year. During our all staff conference, we had a guest speaker come in. His name is Greg Coles, and he is a TCK with a fresh perspective on what it means to have a kingdom-minded sense of belonging. TCK stands for Third Culture Kid, and as a TCK myself, I really connected with his talk. Um, A lot of us here at BFA are TCKs, students and staff, So I hope you listeners will enjoy this. I benefited greatly from it. And without further ado, here's Greg Coles.
1: Hello, BFA friends. I'm delighted to be with you today. Admittedly, being with you in this digital fashion isn't quite as exciting as actually joining you in Germany, but I'll take what I can get. My mission this morning is simple. I want to talk with you about how weird your students are. Specifically, I want to talk about the weirdness that typically accompanies third culture kid identity, and how this weirdness creates a variety of challenges for TCKs as they try to figure out what it means to find a healthy sense of belonging. But, because I am an incorrigible optimist, I also want to flip this idea of challenge on its head, and propose to you that each set of challenges TCKs face in finding belonging can also function as a set of gifts. TCK identity and TCK experiences, rightly understood, don't need to be treated as obstacles or impediments to finding belonging. Instead, I believe these things can be stewarded as assets in the pursuit of belonging, especially for those of us who follow Jesus. See, my deep conviction is that the best way for us to find belonging as followers of Jesus is to belong the way Jesus belonged. And Jesus wasn't exactly a poster child for fitting neatly into the world. In Matthew chapter 8, when a well-meaning would-be disciple says to Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere, Jesus fends the man off by saying, foxes have dens and birds have nests but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, Jesus says, I've committed to a lifetime of being out of place, and if you want to be my follower, you'd better prepare yourself to be just as out of place as I am. Later on in the Gospel of Matthew, Peter, the disciple, seems to get a bit dubious about Jesus' backward approach to belonging. We've left everything to follow you, Peter says to Jesus, what then will there be for us? And Jesus replies, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Jesus has a plan for Peter and a plan for all his disciples to find belonging far better than anything they've dared to dream. But the way to get there is illogical and counterintuitive. It is to borrow the Apostle Paul's term in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, foolishness. You want houses, says Jesus, leave them. You want family, better lose that too. You want life abundant, places in which you belong and people with whom you belong and purposes to which you belong good! Then stop clinging so hard to those things. In pursuit of Jesus, everything must be lost so that everything can be found. Everything must be made homeless so that everything can finally be made to belong. Our true belonging as followers of Jesus is counterintuitively found by giving up on the world's most obvious pathways to belonging. I hope that a lot of you have already experienced this truth in your own lives with Jesus. I hope your Christian discipleship has been characterized by giving up the very things you thought you needed in order to be happy, dying to yourself, letting go of your white knuckled grip on the world, and discovering along the way That what you gain as you radically pursue God's kingdom is somehow better than everything you lose along the way. Maybe that's the story you would tell about your life at BFA. And if that's not the story you'd tell, if you're not experiencing the abundant resurrection life that comes on the far side of daily death, then maybe God wants to give you a new story. But I'll leave that particular question between you And Jesus. So what does all this have to do with TCKs? My contention to you this morning would be this, that the TCK life is marked by the absence of some of the world's most obvious pathways to belonging. And if it is indeed true that our best belonging as followers of Jesus is counterintuitively found by giving up on the world's most obvious pathways to belonging, if the kingdom of God is really as upside down as Jesus says it is, then this is remarkably good news for TCKs who might feel disadvantaged in their search for belonging. It seems to me that we miss the mark if we spend our efforts on trying to teach TCKs how to belong like normal people, trying to grant them remedial access to the world's obvious pathways to belong. Equipping TCKs to belong in pursuit of Jesus means that we can stop giving them tactics for fitting into someone else's belonging model. Instead, we can start inviting them to embrace the gifts of their radical TCK weirdness in the present and future contexts they inhabit. Now is probably a good time to explain that when I talk about TCK weirdness, I'm not doing it from the outside like an intrigued spectator commenting on the behavior of baboons at the zoo. I am speaking from within as a fellow uh, self-confessed weird TCK. My family moved uh, from the United States to Indonesia when I was three years old and I spent the next 15 years living on the island of Java until I came back to the US for college in 2008. I was initially homeschooled, but in my high school years, I started attending an international Christian school in the city where my parents lived. I got myself to and from school each day with a combination of walking and public transportation. It usually took somewhere between half an hour and 45 minutes each way, depending on traffic, and during Indonesia's rainy season, I often came home soaked to the bone by a rainstorm. On my way to and from school each day, the Indonesian kids who I passed on the street would yell their limited Indonesian phrases at me. Hello mister, what is your name? I love you, you crazy. For the most part, I loved growing up overseas. But there's no denying that being overseas contributed to the complicated relationship I have felt with the idea of belonging. I once told my parents that I thought airports were really homey because, and this is a direct quote, at least they're the same in every country. During one season of my childhood, when I was particularly insecure about my United States citizenship, I allowed myself to be photographed wearing a Statue of Liberty t-shirt, knee-high blue and white striped socks, and red and white spangled shorts. It was quite a look, fashion decisions were being made. And though I have since repented of them, repentance does not save us from the consequences of our poor choices. So when you hear me call TCKs weird, please understand I say it with the utmost honor and I'm also talking about myself here. Now, let me give you a quick overview of where we're headed today. I wanna propose to you four sets of challenges that TCKs face in their search or belonging. First of all, geographical challenges. Second, cultural challenges. Third, relational challenges. And fourth, spiritual challenges. Geographical, cultural, relational, and spiritual. To be clear, I'm not suggesting that this is an exhaustive list of challenges. We could probably add a whole bunch more. And I'm also not suggesting that TCKs are the only ones who face these challenges in their search for belonging. Certainly, kids who grew up in their parents' home country have their own sets of issues. But these four realms, geographical, cultural, relational, and spiritual, have been significant players in my own life and also in the lives of quite a few other TCKs that I know. And I think there's good reason to suggest that they might be significant players in the lives of the TCKs that you're working with as well. So as we tackle each set of challenges, I wanna offer some thoughts, not only about why the challenges exist, but also about how these challenges can be reframed and re-engaged as gifts. For the TCK who wants to root their sense of belonging in the person of Jesus, Things that seem from the outside to be obstacles can actually turn out to be advantages. Again and again, as I hope you'll see, my proposal boils down to this. When we stop trying to train TCKs in strategies of normal belonging and start embracing the unique blessings of weird TCK belonging, we become able to see the gifts that are embedded within circumstances that might on their surface look like challenges. Once we've moseyed through all four sets of challenges and reflected on the potential gifts embedded in each one, I'll conclude by offering four hypotheses about what BFA staff could do to facilitate their TCK students' search for belonging. So then, let's tackle our first set of challenges faced by TCKs the geographical challenges. A big part of our sense of belonging as human beings, I would argue, has to do with our relationship to the location that we're in. Is this place my home? Do other people agree with me that it's my home? How long is it likely to stay in my home? If and when I leave it, how likely am I to ever come back? These are tricky questions for a TCK to answer. When people ask me where I'm from, even now, and I've been back in the States for like 13 years, something like that, Uh, even now, uh, when people ask me where I'm from, I usually respond by saying, from is a fluid concept. Growing up, I was highly aware that every nation I could possibly call home was actually somebody else's home, much more than it was mine. Indonesia belonged to its citizens, primarily, I figured, and to me in like a partial and secondary kind of way. And when it came to the US, I was barely more than a glorified tourist, regardless of what my birth certificate said. In the neighborhood where I grew up in Indonesia, there was this wall with an Independence Day mural painted on it that I would walk past every day on my way to school. The mural depicted a uniformed Dutch colonizer holding a gun, being stabbed through the stomach by a shirtless Indonesian man with a bamboo pole, depicting the struggle for Indonesian freedom. And that mural, interestingly enough, turned out to be a pretty decent representation of my inner life as a TCK. I was, in this weird way, both the Dutch soldier and the Indonesian patriot. I was both the tall white outsider and the one who had lived his 15 most formative years on Indonesian soil, which perhaps meant that I was condemned to keep stabbing myself in the gut with a bamboo pole for my entire life. This national confusion gave me some serious national anthem issues. Kind of like how some people have daddy issues, I had major national anthem issues. When I would sing the Star-Spangled Banner, I had no idea as a kid what ramparts were, and so I assumed that it was two words, parts, which I saw all the time in Indonesia. I, I was never quite sure why the Americans were watching the ramparts, or why they had decided to fly a flag directly overhead, but I figured maybe it's like a nationalistic animal sacrifice situation, or maybe they're just hungry. Then there was the Indonesian national anthem, which begins Indonesia tana ayirku tana tumpa daraku, which translates in Indonesian to Indonesia, my land and water, land where my blood has been shed. Every time I sang it, I would wonder whether those words could really apply to me. Was Indonesia mine? Did skinning my knees and bleeding onto the dirt and asphalt qualify me as somebody whose blood had been shed on Indonesian soil? Could I be part of Indonesia and belong in it, even if I didn't wear the whole weight of its history or own a stake in its future? A couple minutes ago, I mentioned the time I told my parents how homey I think airports are. I didn't realize this when I first said it, but in retrospect, here's what I think I've always appreciated most of all about airports. Nobody really belongs in an airport We're all just kind of passing through. You don't look at an unfamiliar face in an airport and say like, ah, well, I don't recognize you. You clearly ain't from around these parts, right? That's the whole point of an airport. No matter how much you've been there, no matter how good you are at going through airports, you're still not somebody who belongs there permanently. With the exception of a handful of airport staff, of course, everybody else is just passing through airports and airplanes are the first place I can remember being where I didn't feel like everybody else belonged there more than I did. Above all, when it came to my sense of geographical belonging, being a TCK instilled in me this pervasive sense of impermanence. The first place I ever called home was the van that my family drove around the contiguous United States when I was a toddler, just before we moved to Indonesia. In one popular family story, I announced my desire to go home one afternoon by whining, I want my vanny van. Even after we moved to Indonesia, where our houses didn't have wheels or odometers like that early van did, that sense I had about the impermanence of my homes continued. I watched my older siblings get shipped off to college one by one, 12 time zones away from me. Every birthday and graduation brought me closer to the expiration date of the place that I called home. Obviously, you don't have to be a TCK to experience the impermanence of places. Lots of people move around as kids to different houses, different school districts, different cities or states or provinces, but the idea of location-impermanence is often uniquely inscribed into the TCK experience. Or at least, it was uniquely inscribed in mine. Even if I had wanted to pretend that the house on Jalan Giger Arum in Bandung, Indonesia would forever be my home, every part of the structure and direction of my life continually reminded me that that home couldn't last forever. Now, if we try to solve TCK's geographical challenges in terms of the world's most obvious pathways to belonging, we would probably spend our time combating the lessons about place that are woven into the TCK experience. So for instance, we might try to resolve national identity angst by encouraging Uh, TCKs to really embrace their alignment with one nation or another, right, by reassuring them, you are really Indonesian, you are really Canadian, you are really German. We might propose all the ways that a TCK's location impermanence can be solved by telling them that they should put down roots once they get back to their family's home country, or by telling them that Uh, Once they graduate college, they can go back to the country of their upbringing again and put down roots there. Or by telling them, you just got to get a teaching degree and come back here to VFA and live here forever. Regardless of what answer we give, it's as if we're always trying to give them some solution to the problem of impermanence and say, no, 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 you can have permanence too if you just walk in this way. But what if... What if TCK's complex relationship to national identity and their sense of geographical impermanence is actually a gift in their pursuit of belonging the way that Jesus belonged? In recent years, as I've watched Western evangelical Christianity get increasingly wrapped up in nationalism, I've found myself wishing more and more That followers of Jesus had a healthy skepticism about the idea that any one nation's success is super high on Jesus' priority list. Making sure that our country is number one in the world. Making sure that we are wealthy and great at the expense of everybody else. These kinds of ideologies are typically harder for a TCK to fall into than they are for someone who has grown up the entire time in their family's nation of origin, because for a TCK, our national loyalties aren't so easy to determine. So when TCKs look at Christian nationalism, we are biographically predisposed to see it for the idolatry that it is. There's certainly a burden that comes with this national ambivalence, but that burden can also be a gift. For those of us with eyes to see it. In Hebrews chapter 11, the epistle writer explicitly connects the homelessness of various heroes of the faith to their ultimate heavenly home. In verses 13 to 16 of Hebrews 11, we read All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised, they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. In other words, being without a country in the deepest sense, understanding that every home you inhabit is only a temporary home stamped with an expiration date, is really, really good news for the follower of Jesus. Our hunger for geographical belonging will never be fully resolved. And it isn't meant to be resolved until we reach that perfect garden that the book of Revelation talks about the place that our feet have been itching for all along. To be a TCK is to live with a built-in reminder that every home between here and there isn't meant to last forever. So that's our first set of TCK challenges and gifts. Let's move on to challenge set number two. So challenge set number two, and these are the cultural challenges. Lois Bichon, who's a counselor who has worked with tons of TCKs over the years, she tells a story in her book Belonging Everywhere and Nowhere about a TCK in a college class who gets asked by his psychology professor how his family celebrates Thanksgiving. And the student responds, well, it depends where we are. And the professor leans in and says, but what are your family's traditions? How, How do you celebrate culturally speaking? and the student finds it impossible to answer. For the professor in this story, the idea of a family's cultural practices ought to have a singular default answer that transcends the family's location. But for the TCK student, culture isn't the kind of thing with a singular default. The student doesn't have one cultural approach. He has multiple cultural options that are constantly being filtered through context. Culture is kind of like a highway bypass that lets you dodge city traffic. When you behave in ways that fit with your cultural habits, you don't have to stop at every traffic light in the city and decide which direction to take over and over again. You just hop on the same highway you always hop on and follow a set of predetermined actions that always bring you to the same outcome. When you're operating within your cultural norms then, you don't have to ask questions like, should I smile at this person or not? Am I supposed to answer that question? How should I hold my silverware? Right, you don't have to answer those questions. You can just hop on the highway bypass and let autopilot take over because your brain and your body already know how to do all of those things. And part of what can make cross-cultural life exhausting, as a number of you I suspect have experienced firsthand, um, part of what makes cross-cultural life exhausting is that activities that you're used to performing on autopilot suddenly require your very specific attention to every detail. You suddenly don't know how to make small talk with your neighbors anymore. You don't know how to go grocery shopping. The highway bypass is suddenly closed for construction and you find yourself stuck driving down city roads and stopping at every single traffic light to figure out which way do I go next. Compared to adults who grew up in one culture and are now living cross-culturally, TCKs tend to be at both an advantage and a disadvantage. On the one hand, TCKs have practiced negotiating multiple cultural settings. They've learned the city roads already, and so the loss of the highway bypass doesn't bother them quite the same way that it would bother somebody who's very used to living in a singular culture and always taking the bypass. But on the other hand, TCKs often can't point to any one culture and say, there's the culture I feel at home in. When the autopilot is available to me, here's the highway bypass I would take. There's a sense in which TCKs are always choosing from among cultural options, right? Instead of having instinctive defaults, they have conflicting cultural instincts that tend to create for them a heightened awareness of each context that they're a part of. It's difficult for a TCK to turn off the cultural decision-making part of our brain and feel completely at rest because so many of the cultural choices that we make have to be selected from among multiple options. Now in the same way that being located between nations makes it tricky for TCKs to feel total ownership over any one location, being located between cultures makes it tricky for TCKs to identify any one set of cultural practices as theirs. I have an adult TCK friend who, a few years after returning to the United States, had an epiphany while standing in the international section of the grocery store. They told me, I just realized, just suddenly realized now that it's okay for me to think of the culture that I grew up in as being mine. Like the language I grew up speaking and the food I grew up eating, it's it's mine. Even though it's not my entire cultural experience, I'm allowed to feel connected to it. For for this person, this was was an epiphany. This came as a shock to them. The common monocultural response to these cultural challenges that TCKs face is typically one of two things. TCKs are encouraged to either pick a single culture and embrace it wholeheartedly or to create a new hybrid culture for themselves rooted in their 3rd cultureness. The first approach usually sacrifices present-day belonging for the sake of future belonging. That is, you could say to a TCK, just be as culturally Pennsylvanian as you can right now, and then when you move back to Pennsylvania, you'll feel right at home. Right. This approach tries to anticipate the TCK's future needs, but it ignores their current existence. The second approach does the opposite. It focuses entirely on where the TCK is right now, surrounded by other TCKs, and encourages them to fixate on their own TCK-ness. It can have great short-term success for some people, but it often sets the TCK up for alienation once they leave their current TCK bubble and go to a place where the majority of the people around them don't share their co-created TCK culture. what to do about the cultural quandary in belonging. Again, I think there's a gift here for those of us with eyes to see it. One posture that we see Jesus modeling in the gospels is a willingness to ignore and even contradict cultural expectations when those things stand in the way of the better kingdom work Jesus wants to do. Jews don't associate with Samaritans as a matter of cultural habit and yet Jesus seeks out a Samaritan woman to ask for a drink. Ritual hand-washing practices and prohibitions against picking grain on the Sabbath get chucked away. At one point, Jesus' mother and brothers show up in a crowd asking to talk to him and Jesus downplays their very culturally significant family connection to him by declaring that anybody who does God's will is his true family. What if TCKs, by virtue of our broad but loose affiliation with multiple sets of cultural practices, have an advantage in taking stock of our contextual surroundings and choosing when to violate cultural expectations in order to pursue a better, more heavenly-minded outcome? What if the absence of a cultural default, a highway to hop along, means that we're less likely to get sucked into the trap of following cultural patterns out of sheer habit? The world around us encourages us to determine our tribe, the people with whom we belong, according to the similarity of our cultural behaviors. In this sense, being a culturally weird TCK might feel like a distinct disadvantage. But in the economy of the kingdom of God, our tribe and our family is determined by our mutual pursuit of Jesus, no matter how different the cultural manifestations through which we pursue him. When we belong like weird, Jesus-loving TCKs, we have the privilege of looking beyond surface-level cultural similarities to embrace a far more robust logic of mutual belonging in the family of God. This point, I think, ties us nicely into the third set of challenges I want to talk with you about, and these are the relational challenges. Now, when I say that TCKs face relational challenges, I'm not necessarily saying that we're relationally awkward and bad at making friends though some of us would admittedly fit that description. What I mean is that TCKs tend to live in a world with a shortage of peers, or at least a shortage of perceived peers. See, being a TCK can often be a lot like being a celebrity. In the country you grow up in, you're an outsider and sometimes a very visibly obvious outsider, kind of like tall, white teenage Greg, surrounded by much shorter and much less white Indonesians. I stuck out like a very pale sore thumb. When I was growing up, it wasn't uncommon for total strangers to come up to me and ask if they could have their pictures taken with me, like they'd suddenly discovered Angelina Jolie hanging out on some remote Indonesian beach. Admittedly, Not every TCK stands out from their surroundings as drastically as I did. But the feeling of being new and bizarre and different, the feeling of being an object of somebody else's fascination, that feeling never quite leaves you. And for a TCK, going back to your parents' home country typically does not dissolve that celebrity feeling. When you go back to the place your parents call home, the other kids want to interrogate you with a hundred inane questions about your life overseas, right? Do you wear clothes in Indonesia? Do you live in a tree? Is Indonesia really all purple, like on the map? And yes, by the way, these are all real questions that my friends and I were asked by kids in the United States. So even if your physical traits no longer set you apart from your peers, your peers' knowledge of your unique experiences can still set you apart as a kind of celebrity. And to be clear, when I use the word celebrity, I'm not necessarily indicating that the valence here, the value, is positive, right? Some people love Justin Bieber, some people hate Justin Bieber, some people are indifferent to Justin Bieber, but everybody is aware of Justin Bieber. TCK celebrity means that people are aware of our difference regardless of whether or not we want them to be aware of it. This celebrity status, this awareness of difference, poses a real challenge in developing new relationships. There's a tendency among many of us to equate belonging with uniformity, which means that being known for your TCK differences from the normal of your surroundings is an inherent threat to belonging. And to the degree that TCKs buy into this mentality, this idea that uh, you need to be uniform in order to belong, to the degree TCKs buy into this mentality, we have two primary options for making friends. We can either make friends exclusively with other TCKs, or we can try to earn our way into predominantly monocultural relational spaces by pretending that we're just as monocultural as everyone else. I have tried my hand at both of these approaches. The first one served me decently well at my international high school. But the moment I left that TCK rich community and moved to the US, I found myself with a massive relational chasm and no good strategy to fill it. So when I reached college, I took the opposite approach. I told people when they asked me where I was from, I told them I was from New York state which was sufficiently true since I'd been born there and spent the summer before college there. And for the first several months of college, in most of my social circumstances, I made it my aim to be mistaken for someone who had always lived in the US. Along the way though, a strange thing happened. I started to realize that the people I did tell about Indonesia, the people who actually knew me, no matter how different we were, were the people I wound up finding belonging with. It wasn't the people I tried to trick into thinking I was just like them, and it wasn't fellow TCKs. It was the people with whom I took the risk of being honest. I'm so grateful for the way that my TCK identity forced me to rethink healthy relationships in that season of my life. It was the first time, though by no means the only time, that I came to appreciate what a terrifying and wonderful and healing thing it is to enter into relationship as yourself, rather than as the person you believe other people want you to be. As I learned to embrace the totality of my TCK weirdness in my relationships with monocultural college friends, I came to see my differences from them not as defects in our friendship, but as design features that strengthened our connection. And, perhaps best of all, I also started to realize that I had a lot to learn from my U.S. bred friends, just as they did from me. Being a TCK didn't make me an outcast, but it also didn't make me some morally or culturally superior creature who needed to bless everyone else with my extraordinary presence. We were just different. And those differences were part of the genius of our togetherness, like the Apostle Paul's one body with many parts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If there's one trend I've noticed among my fellow TCKs that concerns me quite a bit, it's the trend of seeing TCK identity as an alienated and yet superior status. I can think of a number of TCK friends who, being thoroughly convinced that no one in their parents' home country would truly understand them, went off to college with a kind of martyr complex and remained relationally isolated, largely by choice. They stayed well-connected with their old TCK friends, not simply as a way of keeping those relationships strong, but out of desperation, because they persuaded themselves that only TCK friends could meet their relational needs. Here's the reality. TCK friendships are special, and there is a kind of knowing that can happen so easily in those relationships and feel really elusive elsewhere. But it's not by accident that God puts us in community with people whose stories are different from ours. The TCK's weirdness is a gift that functions best when it is shared with non-TCKs. And TCKs need non-TCKs in order to grow and function as part of a larger kingdom body. At least, I am pretty sure the Apostle Paul is with me on this one. Okay, last but not least, let's talk about the spiritual challenges TCKs face in finding belonging. I wanna address three challenges in particular all of which may be true to varying degrees, depending on each TCK's individual story. First, for TCKs with parents in Christian ministry, which isn't all of us, but is certainly a disproportionately large number of us compared to the global average, we tend to face increased pressure to share our parents' perspectives on religious and even social issues. Even if no one intends to put this pressure on us, our mere celebrity status as highly noticeable people means that our relationship to our parents' beliefs can also become highly noticeable. And no matter how much some parents might try to ease this burden, it's a very different thing to wrestle with a question like the existence of God when you know that your answer could impact your parents' paycheck. Second. Whereas churches in Western contexts often blur the line between religious belief and cultural affinity, this blurring is much harder to do as a TCK. So for instance, although the term evangelical has a technical theological meaning, it has largely come to function in the United States as a shorthand for a subculture that has its own specialized dialect used by insiders that produces its own music and movies. a subculture that can be courted by politicians as a voting block. People who grow up exclusively within a subculture like evangelicalism can find themselves pairing questions of spiritual belonging and cultural belonging because they see the same pairing happening in their church communities. So I I know that I am evangelical and believe evangelical things. Why? Because I use the dialect used by evangelical culture. I watch the correct music and movies. But for a TCK who has seen religious belief expressed along a variety of different cultural practices, this equation between religion and culture is much more difficult to perform. Third, the breadth of TCK experiences sometimes makes it difficult to accept the simplistic answers that are typically given to young people who ask spiritual questions. I remember vividly the time a missions team from a church in the U.S. came to Indonesia to lead a vacation Bible school for me and my parents' co-workers' kids. One day, their lesson was on magic. One of the leaders did a bunch of of sleight-of-hand magic tricks And then the teachers went on to tell us a spiritual lesson about how magic doesn't really exist and is simply an illusion. Unfortunately for our United States teachers, they were speaking to a group of kids who had grown up in Indonesia, where the effects of black magic and demonic activity are far plainer than they are in the United States. Some of us kids had seen people possessed by demons eating buckets full of broken glass. We had seen real-life curses and witchcraft. We had seen the reality of the supernatural realm in its terrifying messiness. And so we started arguing with our teachers. Because the simplistic answers they wanted to offer us couldn't stand up to the complexity of our experience. By this point in our time together, I hope you won't be shocked to hear me say that these challenges can also be gifts. To be discontented with a Christianity that reduces belief in Jesus to mere cultural habit is a glorious thing. To be discontented with fake simplicity, to insist on the necessity of nuance, to demand that we engage with the messiness of the world as it really is, and not just the imagined world of our Sunday school answers, is a glorious thing. These TCK tendencies complicate our pursuit of belonging because they complicate our understanding of who Jesus is and what his lordship means for our lives. But I would propose to you that Jesus was a complicated guy, and a complicated faith that has wrestled deeply with hard questions is therefore a stronger faith, a faith that's more likely to withstand the inevitable challenges it will face down the road. In 2012, the Lebanese-American writer Nassim Taleb coined the term anti-fragility. Which he used to describe systems that grow stronger as a result of outside stressors, fractures, and failures. Antifragility isn't just resilience. He writes the resilient resists shock and stays the same, the anti fragile gets better. Though Taleb certainly doesn't have the faith identity of teenagers in mind in his book, I think the concept is well suited to the question of how we can facilitate TCK's spiritual belonging. Though our instinct might be to want to simplify the journey, to smooth out all the story's lumpy bits with a rolling pin, honest and thoughtful struggle is actually a significant gift to the people who experience it. At least, That's my hope and prayer for the students of BFA, and for all of you. In closing, then, I want to offer four hypotheses about what it might mean for BFA staff to be supportive in your TCK students' quest for belonging. I call these hypotheses in large part because I want you to receive them in the speculative nature in which I offer them. After all, I don't know the BFA context anywhere near as well as you do. I've actually never even set foot on Europe unless you count a layover to the Amsterdam airport when I was three years old, which I definitely do not count. I'm also a person whose classroom teaching experience is exclusively limited to college students in the United States, which is admittedly a very different crowd than the crowd that you are working with. So the things that I say here, and the things I've already said in the last half hour or so, will really only have value to the degree that you are all willing to collectively do the work of translation with me and make these ideas applicable to your own context. Hopefully, if the technology accommodates us, I'll be joining you for some Q&A in a few minutes and I would love to carry on the conversation there. So then, on to the hypotheses. Hypothesis number one. Don't try to solve the belonging challenges TCKs face by teaching them how to belong like a monocultural person. Instead, embrace TCK weirdness and the better Jesus-rooted belonging that can be found by leaning into these challenges. In a sense, this hypothesis is simply the logical conclusion of the whole structure of my comments today. If, indeed, you're on board with the idea that the challenges TCKs face in finding belonging can be reframed as gifts and blessings and advantages for those who follow Jesus, then it only makes sense that the people who love TCKs would demonstrate our love by not trying to save them from dynamics that don't require saving. And yet, I have a hunch that this is much easier said than done. It's one thing to say in the abstract that you want to encourage TCKs to lean into their TCK weirdness instead of trying to save them from it. It's another thing altogether to witness their sense of nationlessness and not want to respond by compassionately bolstering their patriotism. Or to hear their cultural uncertainties and not try to disciple them into the cultural expression that you like best. Or to watch them struggle relationally and not simply reassure them it's okay, only other TCKs will ever truly understand you. Or to let them grapple with difficult spiritual questions and resist the urge to waltz in with a tidally prepackaged answer to alleviate their angst. I've noticed a tendency within myself and also I think in a lot of other people to feel like it's our job to help people experience the world the way we've experienced the world. It's a well-meaning impulse, I think, because we know how we've encountered Jesus and what has contributed to growth and beauty in our lives. And we want other people to also encounter Jesus and also find growth and beauty in their lives. So we take our lives as a rubric for someone else's future success. If reading Christian apologetics is the thing that saved our faith, we want other people to read Christian apologetics too. If we've encountered Jesus in marriage, we want them to get married too. Whatever national and cultural and relational and spiritual approaches have worked for us to find belonging, we assume those same approaches will work for others. The better way, it seems to me, especially when we're dealing with the particularities of TCK weirdness, is to let people's journeys with Jesus be uniquely theirs and to let go of the assumption that the avenue through which we have encountered Jesus will necessarily be the best avenue for other people. Hypothesis number two, aim to set students up for belonging not only in their current setting, but also when they leave their BFA TCK bubble. Like we talked about before, There is a strain of TCK-aware care that attempts to solve the challenges of TCK belonging by telling TCKs, you're weird in a special kind of way, and you and your fellow TCKs can fully embrace that weirdness by creating your own subculture right here with us. I'm very sympathetic to the emotional and psychological needs students have that lead us to foster these kinds of attitudes. And yet, having seen TCKs who come out of those environments and then hit their parents' home country like a ton of bricks, I'm concerned that this approach might be prioritizing students' short-term happiness over their long-term health. Whatever strategies we offer TCKs when it comes to establishing a clear sense of their belonging and fit within the world, we want to be attentive in fostering strategies that are applicable not just in their current context, and not just if and when they reach their parents' home country, but strategies that are universal enough to apply to each context they enter. This is why I'm a big fan of emphasizing the upside down and counterintuitive nature of our belonging as followers of Jesus, because this is a principle that remains true across every culture as applicable to the BFA student as it is to the former BFA student now living 7,000 miles away. I also recommend teaching TCKs to treat every new context they encounter, including their entry into their parents' home country, as a kind of cross-cultural encounter. Before I moved back to the U.S. for college, my parents and I used to study U.S. culture together. We would watch Hollywood movies that were popular at the time and then discuss the cultural values and priorities and expectations implied by the movies and what made them popular. It felt a bit silly at times to do this, but it was also a really useful exercise in learning to think about my future home as an object of cultural analysis. Hypothesis number three. Resist the temptation to offer belonging by way of false certainty. Instead, face the fear that accompanies the unknown. I was recently discussing with my friend Mackenzie the human impulse to claim greater certainty than we actually have. I think it's a control issue, she told me. Admitting everything we don't know means letting go of our control, and we like to be in control. This reluctance to lose control, I think, applies not only in the certainties we project for ourselves, but also in the certainties that we brazenly try to offer to other people. Because our compassion makes us wanna offer something that feels trustworthy and instills confidence, we can be tempted to exaggerate our own confidence, trying to offer people the certainty that we think they need. In my experience, adults are especially prone to do this with younger people. We're worried that young minds can't handle the nuance and trickiness of the truth. And so we give them something that feels as tidy and categorical as we wish the world really was. But in my experience, TCKs are hungry for people who can truthfully admit that the world is complicated and then walk with them through that complexity. Your students will face the unknown whether you want them to or not. The only question is whether you'll invite them to face it with you or leave them to face it on their own. And finally, hypothesis number four, valorize the ways God works in all cultural expressions. When we're talking with culturally complicated people, it's easy to want to take sides. We might try to praise our TCK students' parents' home culture and do so in a way that correspondingly looks down on the TCK's growth culture. Or we might praise the TCK's growth culture and simultaneously belittle their parents' home culture in the process. Or we might praise the unique beauty of TCK multiculturality while simultaneously downplaying the beauty of the monocultural expressions all around them. The path of wisdom, it seems to me, is to celebrate the reality that God is made manifest and is at work in distinctive and important ways within every cultural expression. The TCK who embraces this reality will have the freedom to see God at work in their TCK bubble, as well as in the country they currently live, as well as in whatever country they go to next. And the TCK, who has learned to see God at work in every context they inhabit, has access to the best kind of belonging imaginable. I want to close by repeating Jesus' words to Peter in Matthew chapter 19. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Notice that Jesus doesn't deny that things are left behind to follow him. He doesn't say, Peter, you idiot, you didn't give up a thing, now quit whining and go stand by Thaddeus. He recognizes that there is real loss and sorrow in following him. That real and beautiful and obvious pathways to belonging have been ruled out. And yet what Jesus promises his followers is a belonging that's a hundred times better than everything that we've lost in pursuit of him. He promises an upside-down belonging that finds its greatest gifts in the midst of challenges that look impossibly hard. This is my prayer for the students of BFA.
0: Hey guys, you've just been listening to the voice of Greg Coles, author, speaker, and worship leader. Um, You can go to gregorycoles.com to learn more about his life and work. Um, His newest book, No Longer Strangers, Finding Belonging in a World of Alienation, is out and you can purchase his book on amazon or barnes and noble and support him Um, we're so grateful that he was able to bring us this message of encouragement at the beginning of this year and we really felt equipped so thank you greg if you're listening Um, we really appreciated your wisdom and insight we hope you listeners have enjoyed this episode of bfa life if you ever wanted to reach out to us you can always write us at communications at bfacademy.de my name is josh my co-host is nathan and you've been listening to bfa life See you next time.